Coming up on Tech Nation, bet you didn't know that phosphorus plays a critical role in day-to-day living or that it's in every cell of your body. Any alarm about its future limited supply may be eclipsed by its impact on the environment. I speak with Dan Egan, the author of The Devil's Element. Then, Dr. Darren Kelly, the founder and CEO of Serta Therapeutics in Melbourne, Australia. He tells us how his many decades scientific research into fibrosis has led to a treatment for scleroderma, now in advanced clinical trials. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2018, I was able to speak with NYU management professor Melissa Schilling. She writes about such famously innovative people as Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Marie Curie, and Steve Jobs. Each could easily be described as unique but she settled on the word quirky. You know, it was interesting. Some of the ways in which they are alike each other, they're very different from the rest of us or from what you would think of as a population average. And in some ways, I wrestled with this term quirky because, you know, to my mind, a quirk could mean to someone something small, like a little tick or an eccentricity, when really some of these things that they have in common are much bigger and deeper than that. They're more like capacities or, you know, capabilities or belief sets. But, uh... But in the end, in the talking with my publisher and working it through, we decided that quirky worked. And it does. <laughs> and some of, some of the things are definitely very quirky. Like there's, there's a couple of details about some innovators that quirky is really the best word for. Well, I think you should share what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So, for instance, a lot of the innovators, uh, probably half of the innovators wear the same outfit every single day. And, you know, at first you're inclined to think that's just a weird coincidence or it, or it has to do with them being lazy about their thinking. But the more you study it, it's actually an outcome of another trait, which is it's out- outcome of two traits. The first one being that they all have a little bit of social detachment or a social disconnectedness where they don't feel like the rules that apply to other people apply to them. And that means that social rule of getting dressed each day and having a different outfit and sometimes sometimes the social rule of showering didn't apply to them. So if you release that rule and then you add in a second trait, which is that they were keenly focused on an idealistic goal so that they were working all the time and very focused on that goal to the exclusion of almost everything else, then you really easily see how you end up with someone not changing clothes every day or wearing the same thing every day so they don't have to think about it. Um, The quirkiest trait, though, of all, I'd have to say belongs to Tesla, Nikola Tesla, who was probably the quirkiest of all the innovators I studied. He was a really strange and fascinating and brilliant person. I think of all everybody I studied, he's the one that I became most fascinated by. Uh, He had a lot of signs of mania. He didn't sleep very much. He slept about two hours a night when he slept at all. He had strong aversions to anything spherical. So if a woman was wearing pearls, he just couldn't even be near her. He tended to divide the cubic root of his food by three on his plate. And if it couldn't be perfectly divisible by the cube root of three, he wouldn't eat it. So he had a lot of obsessive compulsive tendencies. I mean, he was also a lifelong celibate, except for the fact that he had a long-term relationship with a pigeon that he believed to be his soulmate. (laughs) So I I think that definitely can get filed under the category of quirky. 
to be a breakthrough innovator, you need some very special characteristics. One yeah. is this extreme belief they can overcome obstacles. Right. Psychologists call this trait self-efficacy, and it's kind of a mouthful. And people sometimes confuse it with the more general notion of confidence, but it's not really the same thing. So confidence is supposed to be a general term, and it could be whether you think you're pretty or whether you're good with the opposite sex or whether you're going to be successful at everything you try or lots of different things can go into confidence. But self-efficacy is very specific to task-related activities. So it's this degree to which you believe you can overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. And the interesting thing about it is that someone could look like they're not particularly confident. Like if you met Marie Curie, you might not have come away feeling like she was a very confident person, yet she had incredibly high self-efficacy, and every single innovator in my set had it. And when you have this intense faith that you can overcome any obstacle to achieve your goals, it completely changes the nature of risk because uh, you no longer think of an obstacle as being a signal that you might fail. You just think of an obstacle as being something that you absolutely are gonna surmount and there might even be a bigger dopamine reward after you do surmount it. So it could actually be a little bit exciting to have a challenging problem. NYU professor Melissa Schilling is the author of Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dan Egan gives us a world tour on phosphates, or shall we say phosphorus, and its impact on our world. It might lead to your own backyard, but wherever you are, it's best to pay attention. His book is The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. Then Dr. Darren Kelly from Certa Therapeutics. He tells us about their clinical trials addressing the skin condition scleroderma, their unprecedented approach, and the results of their latest trial are worth noting. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. Well, Dan, welcome to TechNation. Thanks for having me. I have to say... Uh, if you had told me I was willingly going to do an interview about phosphorus, I would tell you you were crazy. But now, not only are we doing this interview, I'm alarmed. <laughs> I mean, everybody should know about phosphorus. Let's start there. Yeah, you know, I've, I had the same uh, reaction from people when uh, I would tell them over the last three or so years that I was working on a book about phosphorus. I'd just get this blank stare. And, you know, sometimes people would look at me like I was just diagnosed with something grim. And um, it isn't the sexiest topic in the world on the surface, but when you dig a little bit beneath that, it's fascinating. And I did not really ever plan on writing a book about phosphorus, but I wrote a book about the Great Lakes called The Death and Life of the Great Lakes in 2017. And doing my research for that, I encountered a lot of material on uh, how phosphorus was affecting algae blooms 
across the country. And I was working specifically on Lake Erie for this, this Great Lakes project. And I thought at the time, well, this is way more interesting than the Great Lakes. So I just kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And then once the Great Lakes book came out, it didn't take long to uh, sign up with my same publisher, same editor, same agent and do this book. Now, of course, people of a certain age will remember the phosphates that were in laundry detergent. It was a big deal. Yes. All of a sudden, we weren't using, we're using cold water instead of hot. We're trying to get the phosphates out of laundry detergent. Phosphates, of course, come from phosphorus. Yes. Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, phosphorus in its elemental form doesn't exist in the natural world. It has to be conjured, if you will, which is exactly what happened back in, I think it was 1669 in Hamburg, Germany, when uh, an alchemist first uh, isolated phosphorus. And, and that's pretty much where this story starts. And um, coincidentally enough, it starts in Hamburg, uh, it stays in Hamburg, it goes kind of around the world, and it ends up back in Hamburg. And this was by no great design as much as it was by coincidence. When I first started researching this material, um, there's just a, a pile of fascinating accounts about the first guy. His name was Hennig Brandt, and he was a um, he was an alchemist, and he was trying to find uh, the philosopher's stone, that magical substance that could turn base metals into gold. And uh, people thought it could be pulled from all manner of things. And Hennig Brandt was a urine man. He he was convinced that he could. He could uh, coax gold from from whatever uh, if he could isolate some magical property in the human waste stream. So he set to uh, tinkering with pee, and it was a lot of pee. I don't think it was just his own. He must have had a, a lot of friends or a lot, of, a lot of willing donors in his neighborhood in Hamburg. But he had vats of urine, and he there's a lot of hocus-pocus that went on. I actually read a translation from French that was done in the early 1700s, and it was incredible the lengths that he went to. But initially, I didn't. I didn't encounter this material. I thought it was just a matter of you know boiling some urine and uh, adding a splash of this and a dash of that, and voila, you've got nuggets of phosphorus. And so I had this grand plan because, of course, this book's about phosphorus, so it's not going to grab people. So it's my job to grab people, not phosphorus. So I thought I'd come out hard in in the story with a. Uh, First-person account of cooking uh, my own urine and, and friends, you know, it takes a lot, uh, urine, and trying to conjure my own phosphorus. And I have a turkey fryer, and at the time, he passed away just over a year ago, but my father-in-law was a chemical engineer all his life. He worked with nitrogen, nit catalysts to, to make nitrogen specifically. He said, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> well, yeah, he's this old English guy. <laughs> he was this old English guy and he was just, you know, he just kind of, he thinks I'm a little, I am a little crazy. And uh, yeah, he just kind of cocked an eyebrow and said, all right, you know, let's just get the safety glasses. And he was, he was living in South Carolina at the time and he was going to be coming up for Thanksgiving. And then um, I was quickly corrected on uh, how I should, or more specifically should not proceed with this by, after talking to a guy at Johns Hopkins who um, specializes in reproducing some of these old alchemy experiments, if you will. And I asked him specifically, you know, what do you think about trying to make my own phosphorus? And he said, we, you can't, you, we, you, we don't have, have like the earthenware that the alchemists use to withstand the heat that, that this would take. And you don't have the, the, the furnace to, to get to that heat to begin with. And even if you did have those two things, 
it's really dangerous because the stuff is very combustible. You know, it's a, it's a weapon of war. It's in Vietnam, it was called Willy Peep. It's white phosphorus, and it's still used today. Uh, it's not supposed to be used on combatants. It's supposed to be used to either throw up a smoke screen during the day because it smokes a lot when it burns, or to illuminate the night sky because it burns very brightly when it burns. But, uh, you know, too often it, it lands on people as well. And it's kind of like, it looks like, when it's falling from the sky, it looks like a firework, you know, like you'd see on the 4th of July, just those those globs just drifting down but to, to the ground. But this is like this molten stuff that um, if it hits you, it'll burn, it'll burn right through you. You know, it doesn't stop burning until it's until it's done. And that can mean going right to the like it hit you in the thigh, it could go right to the femur. And I talked to people uh, who have been burned by phosphorus. Again, it was in Hamburg, so that's how that this this Hamburg thread continued. Um, in 1943, maybe just a, half a mile from where Hennig Brand conjured the first phosphorus, um, downtown uh, downtown Hamburg was was burned to the ground with incendiary bombs by the Allies, and a lot of those were phosphorus bombs, and so. They, I mean, it was a seven-night raid, and it was about as bad as Dresden. It's just not really talked about as much these days. But they dropped a ton of phosphorus, or tons of phosphorus, uh, on on the city. And I was mentioning these globules drifting out of the sky. Well, when they hit water, they go out, and they become stable, and they become like little waxy nuggets. And they look um, remarkably like like little nubs of amber which coincidentally is very common on the shores of the Baltic uh, coast because Baltic amber, I mean, that used to be a great conifer forest and all the, all the resin that dripped from those trees, uh, much of that, some of that resin turned, in, turned into amber. So people actually, you know, scour the coast today looking for these precious little nuggets of amber. Sometimes they accidentally pick up a little nugget of unburned phosphorus. And it's it's inert at that when it's wet and when it's not doing anything until it warms about tick above 80 Fahrenheit and, and then it just combusts. It just explodes. So people think they find amber and they put it in their pocket and then oh my Lord. their uh, their leg goes up in flames. And and so that's that's where I start the story, actually, with this. Uh, retired uh, department store manager ambling along the shore of the Baltic coast. Uh, gosh, I can't remember the year. I think it was like 2018 or 19. And he bent down to pick something up that he thought he'd bring home to show his wife. And uh, it exploded in his pocket. And he, w- he instinctively went into the, and this was in November or December, it was cold. He went into the Baltic Sea to to put the fire out. And then when he came back out, it it, it, it flared again. So he had to sit there screaming for help uh, on this. There was one fisherman there. They they called an ambulance. It took like a half an hour. They talked about putting him on a helicopter, but they were afraid he'd combust again. And they didn't know what was going on. And it would take the helicopter down. So they, they took him in an ambulance. And I, I think they kept the wound wet. And um, it was Amber. And he survived. But his leg is he's a lot of skin grafts. It looks like tree bark, really. And it's not like it's happening every day, but it's not uncommon. I mean, it I talked to I talked to another woman who um I think it was 2016 she was burned similarly and then there are accounts of a bunch of people along the Elbe River which runs right through Hamburg 
doing something similar, picking up what they think is a precious little gem, and it turns out to be this explosive, pure elemental phosphorus that dropped out of the sky in July of 1943 and then roared back to life when they, when they took it from the water. In fact, uh, you write in your book, you make mention, I'll just say, uh, that there's evidence that the Russian forces have used phosphorus bombs uh, in the territories they're occupying in Ukraine today. Yeah, I don't know if they're bombs, and I, I don't think anything's been been proven, but there's been similar charges made against Israel and the U.S. I mean, th- there were, there's a very well-publicized incident where I think like an eight-year-old girl uh, got hit by it. And I think, I think it, it hit her in the face and, you know, it's, it's legal under the rules of war, um, to, to use this stuff as long as you're not targeting people. But uh, I think it's, it also scares the heck out of people and out of, out of the enemy. So I, I think, I don't think it's that uncommon for, for it to be, to, for it to land on people, whether that's intentional or not, it happens a lot. And it's not supposed to happen at all. You are listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dan Egan. He's a journalist in residence at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Center for Water Policy, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. He's won about every science journalism prize I've ever heard of, and he's here today with The Devil's Element phosphorus, and a world out of balance. Well, now let's get to this cycle that is just so human. You know, suddenly someone does basically a scientific experiment to either prove something or find something, and this all happened in Hamburg, Germany. The next step is how did phosphorus make the leap into becoming a good fertilizer? Well, it always was in the form of phosphate, which is how phosphorus exists naturally in the world. It's bound with oxygen atoms to create phosphates, which are, you know, one of the three critical chemical um, ingredients for modern fertilizer, along with nitrogen and potassium. Back in the early days of agriculture, you know, people knew that, that their soils needed to be replenished and they would throw almost anything they could think of on the landscape. And if, if blood worked well, they'd use a lot of blood. If bones worked well and bones really worked well, they'd use a lot of bones. They didn't really know why it was working. They just knew it worked. And as chemistry progressed and they were able to isolate from certain materials what was in them, and then they were able to deduce from that, you know, what, what a crop needed, then they realized that they needed to find phosphates. And this brought particularly the Eng- the English, which were you know, they were great agriculture pioneers, and they were also squeezed for crop space because it's an island nation. They were very aggressive in pioneering new sources of fertilizer. So once they figured out that bones were really pretty miraculous, um, especially on some of the acidic soils across the UK, they went on the hunt for bones. And this brought them to some crazy places, including the battlefield of Waterloo which in 1815, I hope that number's right, um, you know, it's a June June day in 10 hours, some 40,000 soldiers fell along with a bunch of horses. And if you were to go to that site today, which I did, um, you would find out from the people at the visitor center and from historians that 
they they haven't found any bones on that battlefield for hundreds of years. And that's because not long after the Battle of Waterloo, the British went back and um, basically mined the whole the whole place for for their bones and and brought them back across the English Channel. And they had built special bone crushing mills and they ground the stuff up and spread it on crops and things like turnips went boom. And so it was all about bones for a long time. But now that the chemists were involved, they could start really trying to isolate what materials were rich in phosphorus. And, and eventually they they came to some deposits of bird poop on the Guano Islands off of Peru. And these were literally mountains of desiccated bird poop because it really doesn't rain there. So uh, the islands are nesting grounds for a lot of birds and those birds poop. And over millennia, it just stacks up. So you just have these towers of, of bird poop that became uh, really the agriculture fuel for a lot of uh, Western Europe throughout the uh, mid to late 1800s. And there was so much bird poop, and this is a recurring theme in this story. There was so much bird poop at the time that people thought it was inexhaustible, that they were never going to run out. They didn't have to worry about it. Well, you know, you know what's coming. They ran out. And this was like in the 1890s. So then the hunt progressed to certain uh, rock formations, specifically sedimentary rock, which is basically just accreted dead life, which, you know, just piling up over eons. And and so uh, big deposits were found in South Carolina. There's still deposits in Florida. Um, but there was also competition now from every agriculturally based country, which at the time is pretty much every country. Uh, for for more and more fertilizer, so uh, whole islands were raised almost to sea level out in the Pacific during the uh, early 1900s, all the way into the late 1990s, I guess, or 1970s. And so today we're left with with a relatively. I mean, there's still a lot of it out there, but the 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 reserves, the stuff that is mineable at you know today's economics is is fast diminishing, and there's been estimates that the U.S. Uh, supplies in Florida, which is where most of them are, are going to play out in a matter of decades. And and globally, there's been some people saying it could be 60 or 70, 80 years, which I don't think is really realistic at all. But but you are going to have regional shortages. And what's really critical to this whole story is most of the phosphate, sedimentary rock phosphate deposits that uh, remain today are found in Morocco and the occupied, its occupied territory of Western Sahara, like 80% of them. So you don't have to run out of this stuff to have problems. It's not spread evenly across the globe. So you're talking about food security, kind of like we, we've long talked about uh, energy security. But, you know, there are, there are workarounds for energy security, and we're working on that. But there is no workaround for phosphorus. There's nothing that can do its job. And it's in every living cell on the planet. Everything needs it. And um, this could be the source of great tension and maybe even conflict in the coming generations. Now, when we say chemically synthesized fertilizer, chemical fertilizer, mm -hmm. the chemical processes are the ones that actually take phosphorus and put it into the fertilizer. You have to start with something that has phosphorus in it, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. You start with these rocks, which are, are rich in, in phosphates, and they, um, they basically uh, turn it into phosphoric acid, and then they can mix that with nitrogen and potassium. And that's why you see, like, if you go to uh, 
you know, Home Depot to get fertilizer, you'll see the NPK ratio. And that scale that up, that's what we do with, with big time agriculture. It's, it's a constant, like I was speaking earlier about how the British were, you know, uncanny at finding new sources of fertilizer. And they also had a sense that it's, everything's got to be churned in back into the earth. And that really is an essential part of this story as well. The, the whole idea that phosphorus is like that last link in the circle of life. It really, these, these molecules are not designed to be used once and then they burn up and go away. They can be used over and over and over again. Like, you know, a cow poops, grass grows, the cow eats the grass, a cow poops, grass grows, and on and on and on. It's the circle of life. We cracked that circle when we started to bring in chemical fertilizer. We turned that circle into a straight line, and that line runs from a factory to a crop to a river to a lake. And there's the next part of the story. Once it hits a lake, it doesn't lose its fertilizing properties, but instead of growing soy, a soybean or a kernel of corn, it starts growing algae. And too often now, it's growing toxic algae. And this stuff is not just a nuisance. It's really a threat to human and animal health. It's not uncommon to read stories about dogs dying, jumping into these uh, these uh, ponds that have this brilliantly green uh, goo on top of it, the cyanobacteria. Oftentimes it's uh, microcystis and it produces this toxin uh, called microcystin that um, is really dastardly stuff. And it, you can find it in ponds, all in lakes and rivers all across uh, the country and the world. And the reports of it are growing increasingly common by the year. And there, I don't know the answer to this question. Is it because people are more aware of it or is it because it's happening more often? I think the answer is probably both. We're just, we're overdosing our agriculture fields to the point where our waters are suffocating with this stuff. Well, back when we were taking phosphates out of laundry detergent, and that all finally got solved, you know, it's like, it took a while, but it got solved. You can go back to washing your clothes. Um, the Clean Water Act of 1972, it was supposed to clean up all the phosphates used in agriculture. What happened? Well, that's an interesting chapter of a story, which is a book. <laughs> um, it... <laughs> So, yeah, you know, laundry detergents weren't a common product until the 1950s and 60s, and they didn't come around until homeowners started, you know, putting washing machines in their basement. So, yeah, you could do the laundry, the, the you know, drudgery, take the drudgery of a day and, and um, do it with a push of a button and you'd have clean clothes. But it wasn't that simple because traditional soap just wasn't strong enough to do the job. So chemists of the day in the 1950s and 60s, started crafting these uh, chemical uh, cleaners, like a synthetic soap, basically. We call it detergent. And a critical ingredient in that was, was phosphates. And so real quickly, when, the, when, when those detergents like Tide hit the market, it didn't take long for our waters to get fouled. And, you know, that's this brought us to like the late 60s when Lake Erie was declared in the media as a, like a dead sea. It wasn't dead, but it was largely lifeless. And that was because so much phosphorus was going into the lake that it was creating these massive algae blooms. And those blooms eventually would die and decompose and burn up all the oxygen in the water. So nothing, except for maybe some slugs or something, could survive on vast swaths of the bottom of Lake Erie. And that's when it was declared by Newsweek or Time, I can't remember, as, as being America's Dead Sea. 
I'm speaking with Dan Egan, the author of The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of the entire Tech Nation program and standalone biotech segments are available through your favorite podcaster, as well as at technation.com and for biotech exclusively, biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, we'll talk about an advance in treating scleroderma, some 25 years in the making. Science always seems to take a while. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dan Egan. He's a journalist in residence at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee Center for Water Policy, a two time Pulitzer Prize finalist, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. He's here today with the devil's element phosphorus in a world out of balance. So much phosphorus was going into the lake that it was creating these massive algae blooms. And those blooms eventually would die and decompose and burn up all the oxygen in the water. So nothing, except for maybe some slugs or something, could survive on vast swaths of the bottom of Lake Erie. And that's when it was declared by Newsweek or Time, I can't remember, as, as being America's Dead Sea. And the question at the time was, what's causing this? Um, is, it, is it the nitrogen? coming off of farm fields and from factories? Is it carbon? Is it phosphorus? And, and a bunch of Canadian scientists and, and other scientists from around the world decided to get to the bottom of it by going to far western and very remote uh, Ontario, where the federal government basically gave them the keys to <laughs> dozens of lakes to basically treat like test tubes. And the idea was you needed to conduct whole lake experience, experiments to really see how these chemicals affected life in a lake on a large on that kind of a scale you couldn't do it in an aquarium so so they did these famous tests and like the most famous one was they took a lake and uh cut it in half with like this polyurethane curtain and it's a little more complicated than this but basically they gave one side nitrogen and one side phosphorus and two weeks later 
one side was golf course green and the other side was still like, you know, a, a, a blue body of water that you would expect in the middle of the north woods of Ontario. And that was that was evidence. That was a pretty daring experiment. I'm not sure they'd let you yeah, do it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was crazy, <laughs> but it, 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 it was crazily, crazy ambitious. But I mean, it worked. And it basically that picture of of the, the, you know, Kelly Green half of the lake did more to open people's eyes than any kind of, you know, bar chart or, you know, data could could possibly have done at the time. So it was identified phosphorus in the form of phosphates was identified as a real bad water pollutant. And that led to eventually um, almost the entire removal of phosphates from modern detergents and, and dishwashing. So and and the results of choking this flow were fast and dramatic in 1972 or so around the time that the Clean Water Act came out. Dr. Seuss, I think his name is Theodore Gissel. I don't know. No, I, I'll probably get that wrong. But Whoever Dr. Seuss yeah. is. <laughs> in, the, in the early 1970s, Dr. Seuss uh, wrote the Lorax. And in the Lorax, he wrote about uh, Lake Erie and its water being so smeary. And, and uh, fish were like walking. There's pictures of fish walking on their, on their fins out of the lake. And um, he wasn't too far off. It was a nasty lake at the time, or, or vast swaths of it were. But when we got the Clean Water Act and when we reduced the, the phosphate flow through uh, reduction in, in detergents, it turned around really quickly. So by 1985, you know, the lake was drawing more fishing lines than punch lines once again. And um, some people at Ohio State University actually wrote the good Dr. Seuss and said, hey, you got to come come up to Lake Erie because that's that's not fair what you're saying about the Lorax or in the Lorax. And uh, he replied, I found a copy of the letter some years back, but he replied in a very Seussian tone that um, he's read from afar the work that's been going on and he agrees. And so he pulled it, pulled that line from the Lorax. So if you go down to the bookstore today, um, you won't see any reference to Lake Erie and the Lorax. Uh, and this happened in a matter of like 10 years. Unfortunately, we're back to massive algae blooms on Lake Erie and, and maybe maybe that line uh, should should go back in. So, but the, the Clean Water Act, um, you know, it was really designed to throttle industrial excrements. The idea being that um, you can plug what's coming out of a smokestack or a pipe, or you can scrub it, clean it in some fashion. Agriculture was given a pass largely because it was thought at the time that the nutrient pollutants of fertilizer, whether it's chemical or manure-based, um, were too diffuse and not important enough to regulate under, you know, the Clean Water Act. So they essentially gave agriculture a pass. And it wasn't a problem for a while, but now it's increasingly becoming a problem as farms get bigger and, and fertilizer, now I'm speaking about manurial fertilizer, gets spread too often on crops that don't need it. It's really just too often kind of a crude disposal system. Uh, for big agriculture operators. So, you know, they'll, they'll flood a, f a field with, with this brown, they, they, they liquefy it, mix it with water so they can spray it out of trucks, and then they just blast fields with it. And often it can be a great nutrient for, you know, the next, the next crop of corn or soybeans. But what 
often it's not, and it washes into the water, and that's why you get these pictures of just like this impossibly green uh, algae. <laughs> I mean, it looks like spilled paint. Uh, the cover of this book that I've written on phosphorus is uh, uh, algae bloom on Lake Erie, and I don't know. Have you seen it? Have you yes. seen the cover of the book? Yeah, I mean, right here. It should be. Yeah, showing everyone on the radio. Yeah, so <laughs> it's we really green. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's Lake Erie, and and that's not a healthy Lake Erie, and so that's a result of agriculture really not being regulated appropriately at the moment. And then, you know, the agriculture, I don't want to denigrate the work that farmers are doing because it's obviously essential. I had breakfast this morning and I'm going to have lunch this afternoon and dinner tonight. I'm going to do it all again tomorrow, as is most everybody. Um, but they're, all, they're operating in a system that, you know, they didn't necessarily create on their own and the system isn't working. And those who argue it, that it is just haven't gone to the beach recently. I mean, and I'm not talking about the beach at Lake Erie. I'm talking about here in Wisconsin, uh, Lake Mendota, which is just this spectacular lake right on the banks of uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and the University of Wisconsin campus. It has a beach and a dock and a lifeguard station. And you go there in July and August, and there's no lifeguard because there's no lives to guard because there's nothing sane that would go in that water it's just goop and and this is because of agriculture runoff and to be clear uh the plants whatever you're planting in uh in agriculture those plants will take the phosphorus out of the soil as it needs it yes so this has you want to have exactly the amount that it needs and it's when it's, it's the excess which is creating this problem. Exactly. And, you know, um, this book isn't prescriptive. I'm not I'm not writing saying this is what these are the five steps we need to take because it's it's a huge problem and it's complicated and it, it's going to take years to solve. This isn't going to be like uh, Lake Erie in the 1960s where we pull phosphates from detergents and we have results in six or seven years. This could be a project or a restoration initiative that could take on the order of decades, which is kind of grim, but we got to start somewhere. And the problem right now is, yeah, we're, we're for too long, we put too much chemical uh, nutrients on the fields and farmers have gotten a lot better at, at, at dosing their fields with, with the right amount of fertilizer, but it, it doesn't always work. And for a lot of people, sometimes they put more on because it's an insurance policy. It's not going to hurt the crop, right? If you put too much on and if you got a big rain and some of the stuff washed off before your crop started growing, then you could have nutrient deficiencies. Then you're going to have a bad crop and a bad year. So there was never an incentive to be real, really precise about this, except for, except for the cost, but there was a cost for not, you know, for, for for having a field that for whatever reason when it came time for the crops to grow wasn't adequately fertilized so they're just you know playing a numbers game but the consequences of that game are um the excess phosphorus just goes down and flows downhill like everything else on earth and and you know that's that's a body of water and there it's not growing. as i said earlier it's not growing crops well it is growing crops it's growing crops of toxic algae very interesting, complex problem. It is. It's a really, really complex problem. Now, journalist to journalist, uh, I noticed in the notes to your book something that I run into 
constantly. Now, in my case, my guests often want to use the correct scientific term. And every day, people just don't use it. Your example was algae bloom. That's what people say. But but scientists would say algal bloom. I can't even pronounce it correctly here. <laughs> my example would be bacteria. When talking about a single bacteria, scientists would call it a bacterium. Yeah. Which is like, you know, that's the Latin. Bacterium is singular. I go by what people, uh, you know, I just talk to about it and hear them say, what do you do? How do you make that call? Well, you know, I make the call right at the beginning of the book. I think in the, uh, intro, not in the introduction, but maybe an author's note or something, I talk about how I, I know that the proper term is algal bloom, but you'll never hear anybody at the end of a bar talking about an algal bloom unless you're running around with a bunch of limnologists or something. Um, so I am not a scientist and I am not writing for scientists. I'm writing for uh, a very, very much a lay audience. And so another tricky uh uh, phrasing is phosphorus or phosphates, because whenever you're talking about fertilizer, you're talking about phosphates, but it gets confusing. So I just stick with phosphorus. But that's just indicative of the approach I took with this book. And that is, I say, I think in that same author's note or somewhere else in there, I talk about how this is, this is not a call to arms or to action. It's just to, it's not to point fingers. It's to shine light and to connect dots for people so they can figure out why their favorite lake has suddenly become, become so sullied. And there's a lot of dots to connect. And it's an intimidating project for somebody like me to take on. But then again, too often, so much of the science is done, you know, in, in each field's respective silos and people aren't communicating and talking. So, um, yeah, I was just trying to, to paint a, a, a picture for a layperson or even for somebody who works in a very specific corner of the scientific world to see how their work may be affected by other work or other phenomena that, um, you know, don't naturally, logically always uh, connect. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, I hope you'll come back and see us again. Yeah, I'm happy, happy to have been here once, and I'd like to do it again. My guest today is Dan Egan. The book is The Devil's Element, Phosphorus and a World Out of Balance. It's published by W.W. Norton. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Fibrosis is the medical condition where there is an overproduction of fibrous growth and scarring. It can occur almost anywhere in the body, in major organs, in muscle tissue, in blood vessels, and more. What we're talking about today is a particular kind called scleroderma. It's an overly active fibrous condition of the skin. Here, the skin thickens and tightens and may become extremely sensitive to cold and heat. Patches of skin can become dry and itchy and even discolor. Joints can swell and become painful and mobility can be compromised and more. It's considered to be an autoimmune disease caused by the usual suspects, some combination of genetics, immune system challenges, and environmental factors, including stress. Today, I speak with Dr. Darren Kelly, a professor and researcher at the University of Melbourne and the founder and CEO of CERTA Therapeutics. CERTA's drug candidate for the treatment for scleroderma is based on his multi-decade scientific research. It's currently in advanced clinical trials. And now, Dr. Kelly. Dr. Kelly, welcome back to the program. 
Well, thanks, Moira. It's great to be on the program once again. Now, we don't often talk about great clinical trial results. It seems like we're always waiting for them. But we do have some good results today. And before we get to that, I want to lay some background out. And I'd first like to talk about fibrosis. Um, and, and we'll be talking within fibrosis of, of a medical condition called scleroderma. But fibrosis itself, you've told me that it causes 45% of the deaths in the industrial world, nearly half. So what's included in that 45% and why the industrial world? Yeah, it's a really good point, Moira, and, and most of the, your listeners may not um, have attributed fibrosis as you know, such a, a big uh, cause of mortality. Most people think cancer. Um, but the thing about fibrosis is that it basically causes scar tissue to all of our organs, and that's the reason our organs fail. Um, so, you, you know, when you have kidney failure, uh, you get scar tissue. Uh, when you have a heart attack, you have scar tissue. Uh, and when you have cancer, you end up with scar tissue. And that scar tissue basically takes over the organs and stops the cells functioning, and therefore they fail. So it, it's an enormous problem. Uh, it's a massive unmet need. Uh, and so any drug that can target fibrosis directly uh, and stop that fibrosis uh, can have a, a, a massive um effect, beneficial effect to human health and, and obviously health economics. So it's, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a big problem. And uh, whoever cracks that, it's going to be a huge blockbuster. Now, why the industrialized world? Is that only where you get uh, information from? Or is there a key there to something else? I think the, the publication that wrote industrialized work really actually was saying that that's where it's been documented in other, uh, you know, uh, parts where you have malaria and, and other things that are not associated with fibrosis, you know, the documentation is not as good. Um, so there's not as much clarity. So it's always been classified as a, a condition that's, you know, more prevalent in the industrialized world. Many people don't know you are a longtime professor at the University of Melbourne. And, and for decades now, you've been studying fibrosis. What have you done and what has your research learned that we didn't know before? So over the past 30 years, we've been looking at individual components that uh, cause fibrosis. But the problem is there are, there are thousands of different components that lead to inflammation and fibrosis and ultimately uh, end organ failure. So if you just block one target, you don't see a benefit in the clinic. So in our research, we've been focusing on upstream pathways that block a multitude of those different factors. In fact, around 80% of those factors. So this highly specific target can then stop all of the downstream pathways. So a little bit like a river, slowing the river flow, um, slowing the flow, slowing the inflammation and stopping the fibrosis. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it really is around the, uh, the upstream pathway. Now, let's talk about scleroderma itself. What is it? Who gets it? What's its effect on the human body? Yeah, well, scleroderma is it's a really a debilitating condition. Uh, it's an autoimmune condition. It's probably not that well known, but it fits under the rheumatology sort of umbrella. So it's a condition where you can get fibrosis in a variety of different organs, uh, often in the lung, where you then suffer from shortness of breath and, and, and you know, you can then lead to mortality. Uh, the joints... 
it can affect kidneys, a whole multitude of different different effects, skin, uh, thickening of skin. And, and so, yeah, there are no treatments available at the moment. It's a condition that predominantly affects working age women. Uh, and the treatments at the moment are really around alleviating only the symptoms. Uh, so not really having an effect on the fact that this condition causes uh, inflammation and, and fibrosis throughout the whole body. Now, is this strictly genetic? Look, it's probably not just genetic, but there may be environmental factors uh, that trigger off this autoimmune response. Um, there probably is a, is a genetic component, but it's unknown at the moment. The immune response is basically the body attacking itself um, and looking at the body as if it's a foreign particle or a foreign body and then attacking itself, causing inflammation, and then ultimately fibrosis. So it's a bit of a check issue here where um, the body's tricked into thinking uh, it's it's a foreign body. Now, you've learned the genetic profile. You've looked at the, as you say, the upstream, the upstream pathways that could be problematic, and you've developed a treatment, a pill. What what did you develop, and, and what does it do? Yes, well, um, as you we were saying before, so this research does come out of our laboratory at the University of Melbourne at St Vincent's Hospital and also the Bio21 Institute. Uh, working with a chemist many years ago named Spencer Williams, he and I got together uh, and started working on this 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 novel uh, compound uh, called FT11. Um, and FT11 blocks that upstream pathway, uh, and then can actually then dampen down you know eighty percent of those those factors that cause inflammation uh, and fibrosis. And therefore, it's predicted that it will have a, a much better outcome in terms of preserving tissues and, and preventing fibrosis. So the idea is to, is to dampen down the whole thing, if you will, the whole activity, not just to treat the various symptoms where it happens to occur in your body. Yep, 100%. You're exactly right. It's, uh, it's about you know, slowing down that whole process that occurs over, over many, many years, from, you know, from two years to 20 years, and, and it's you know, quite debilitating, as you can imagine. Okay, so now we've just finished a phase two trial. Tell us exactly what you did. What ha- what did the participants do? And then what were the results? Yeah, I think it goes back to your point before. We're always waiting on clinical trial results, and we've spent 16 years developing this. So when you do see something come from the laboratory out into the real world and then uh, you, you get your phase two data before Christmas and you look at the the clinical indicators and you see a huge benefit in patients that were on the 400 milligram dose. Uh, more than 60% of patients uh, had a positive clinical response to our drug. It was safe. Uh, and so this is, you know, it's phenomenal. It's remarkable data. It's never been seen before. Uh, and of course, it, it sends chills down his spine really because that's why you go and you go and develop or try and develop a drug. And, you know, it, it is a long pathway, as you've mentioned before. Now, if I'm, I'm looking at my data here, so let me say this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You tested 30 adults, 10 on placebo. They got nothing. They didn't know they got nothing. They took a pill every day like everyone else. Um, 10 who got the 200 milligram version and 10 who got the, the 400 milligram version. As you were saying, the 400 milligram version, um, 60% 
saw improvement, market improvement. On the 200 milligram version, that was only 20%. And on the placebo, you actually measured a worsening, which is truly, truly unfortunate. But I'm sitting here thinking, okay, great. This, this is the kind of result you get in phase two. You're very encouraged. But, you know, it's not obvious what to do next. It's like, uh, do you do a 400 and a 600 milligram version? What do you do? Where do you go from here? Look, that's a great point, and that's something we're contemplating at the moment. I think the exciting thing is that you rarely ever see a 60% response uh, with your top dose, and I, I think we're confident now that our top dose is 400 milligrams. So from here on, we would probably move into a registration trial where we do both 200 and 400 milligrams. Uh, we monitor the safety of these patients over 12 months, uh, and we look for efficacy. So clearly we're getting some early responders because the trial showed, you know, significant clinical improvement after only 12 weeks, which really is phenomenal. Um, so it, it really is encouraging moving into a, a pivotal marketing trial where we aim to show, you know, a, a huge benefit to patients. Uh, and potentially even at the lower, the lower dose, we, we might see more and more patients responding um, but taking a longer time. Well, I have to laugh. I'm sitting here saying, well, how about a higher dose? <laughs> you have some, you must have some indication that a higher dose uh, ha- could have other uh, side effects. The truth is you rarely see 60% response rate. So that to me means that, uh, you know, based on all the research, research we've done over the, over the many years, I'm confident that 400 is our, is our upper limit. And what we're really looking for here and, and what the FDA will be looking for is actually the minimum dose because they want to make sure that the compounds are safe as it possibly can be. So if 200 milligrams works out to have a 50% response rate over 12 months, that's probably the dose we'll go to the market with. I like it. This is why I'm the journalist and you're the researcher slash entrepreneur. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now we have our roles straight. Now, now, now we know what we're doing. But I, I think that really points out it's like we only you only went for 12 weeks and if you're you, you want to take as little of any medication as possible so if it's like yes we could get you there uh to where you are in 12 weeks but you're going to be taking this you anticipate for the rest of your life at this point and so you don't want to do any damage you want to say be a little patient if if the if a long term can bring it we would prefer to do that. So that says to me the next trial, you could do 200 milligram again, 400 milligram, but you're going to go more than three months. Yeah, no, exactly right. It'll, it'll be a, probably a 12-month study, uh, and, and that'll then allow us to look at uh, you know, safety in, in more detail. We've already got a great safety profile, but showing it over 12 months, because as you said, we're going to be treating patients for you know, 5, 10, 20 years, so we want to make sure it's safe. Uh, and that'll give us a, a really good readout on when the clinical efficacy starts to take place. Is it 12 weeks or are there more patients um, getting clinical efficacy after six months? Uh, so that's a, you know, it's a really great point. We do have some of the, the patients on what's called open label extension. So despite the fact they were treated for 12, what, 12 weeks, there were several patients that when we unblinded the study said they had a, a, a clinical benefit and wanted to remain on drug. So we've, we've supplied them with drug for another nine months and we're monitoring those patients quite closely. 
Uh, and of course, they're, they're keen to stay on drug. Uh, they're feeling a lot better, less pain. Their joints feel, um, you know, freer. So I, I think that's, you know, part of us sort of moving into that transition phase where we do uh, a pivotal trial. Now, you're in Melbourne, but you've said the FDA. Where are your trials? Where are you targeting to go here? Yeah, the trial's global. So this current trial that we're talking about was predominantly done in, in Europe and Australia, uh, and mainly because there was a lot of competing trials in the US at that time. But as we move into a, a pivotal trial, it'll be a global, international, US, Europe, Australia, Asia um, clinical trial. How does this compare to the standard of care? What is out there now? Um, that's that's a really great point because the standard of care at the moment is really only trying to alleviate some of the symptoms like pain, uh, lethargy, um, you know, without treating the fibrosis itself. So this is this is what we would hope will be the standard of care um, that will make patients have a better quality of life uh, and, and improve their their lifestyle and allow people to to get back into the workforce and and and. Yeah, really improve quality of life. I think that's a critical thing. Well, Dr. Kelly, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and keep us updated. Thanks, Maura. It's always great to chat to you. University of Melbourne professor Dr. Darren Kelly is the founder and CEO of Certa Therapeutics. He also serves as the director of biomedical research in the Department of Medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. More information is available at certatherapeutics.com. That's CERTA, C-E-R-T-A, certatherapeutics.com. More information about scleroderma, including the location of designated research and treatment centers throughout the United States, and information regarding the pediatric form of this condition, is available from the National Scleroderma Foundation at scleroderma.org. For Technation, I'm Moira Gunn. Technation and its regular segment, Biotechnation, are produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.